Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. This episode contains sensitive material relating to animal cruelty and child abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine a world where every word ever written, every picture ever painted, and every film ever shot could be viewed instantly in your home via an information superhighway. And in fact, that's already happening on something called the internet. But you can do more than just send messages on the internet. You can bully and harass, reveal private documents, expose secrets and crimes, order hundreds of pizzas to other people's houses, and call in SWAT teams, troll people into hiding or suicide, destroy reputations, gather digital pitchforks, and deliver digital justice, all by manipulating information. You don't need a gun to be a vigilante. Sometimes, all you need is Wi-Fi. Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, I'm putting vigilante justice under the microscope, looking at vendettas, politics, mob hysteria, self-proclaimed heroes, fed-up victims, and most of all, the moral question, when is it just, if ever, to take the law into our own hands? We began this journey with a story of frontier justice in Skidmore, Missouri, looking at the vigilante murder of Ken Rex McElroy, as told through the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing. McElroy was gunned down in broad daylight in front of dozens of witnesses, and to this day, no one has identified his killer. That murder was one vigilante act, but it spawned another, silence. By withholding information, the townspeople altered the course of justice. Justice can also be delivered by revealing information. Think of the Scarlet Letter. In the new Wild West of the Internet, which is still largely unregulated and lawless compared to the physical spaces we inhabit, information has become weaponized like never before. And there are as many kinds of informational predators as there are informational vigilantes. There are the scammers looking to steal your credit card information. And then people like James Veach. A few years ago, uh, I got one of those spam emails. 
Now, my hand was kind of hovering on the delete button. As you are, I was looking at my phone, I thought, I could just delete this. Or I could do what I think we've all always wanted to do. <laughs> and I said, Solomon, your email intrigues me. <laughs> and the game was afoot. He said, Dear James Veach, we shall be shipping gold to you. You will earn 10% of any gold you distribute. So I knew I was dealing with a professional. I said, Solomon, if you're going to do it, let's go big. Veach goes on to scam the scammer by wasting his time with useless information. Not all evigilantes are so whimsical, though. Some take themselves very seriously. Hello, citizens of the world. Now is the time to open your eyes. Together we stand against the injustice of our own government. We are anonymous. We are legion. That was from a video posted in 2011 by the hacktivist group Anonymous, protesting the National Defense Authorization Act. The speaker wears a Guy Fox mask and a black cloak. The origins of Anonymous were on the image board 4chan. And everyone there posts with the name Anonymous. That's Gabriella Coleman, author of Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, The Many Faces of Anonymous. Around 2005, there was a collective identity and set of symbols that formed around Anonymous. And that was a headless man in a suit. And people started to use that name to engage in trolling and pranking, where they would target an individual or an organization and perhaps harass them or bring to light some injustice they were doing. But oftentimes, you know, who they targeted or why they targeted someone just felt very haphazard. And it was very, very hard to predict who they would go after. One of the most famous examples has to do with a young boy who had shared some videos of himself engaging in animal abuse. 2009, Lawton, Oklahoma. In the video, a 13-year-old boy is wearing a black ski mask. Today's topic is animal abuse. Hey, who are you? Timmy. Oh, Some Timmy. people know me as the animal abuser. Ah, so what do you have to show us, Timmy? He reaches into a shower stall. This is my cat. Oh, howdy. I'm going to stop the clip there. Trust me, you don't need to hear it. At the first moment when the boy yanks the cat up by the scruff and starts screaming in his ears, I experienced an immediate surge of rage and despair and had to leave the room. From descriptions I've read, he proceeds to slam the cat against the wall. That would make many people disgusted or furious. And to Anonymous, coming from the cat-loving forums of 4chan, which gave birth to still popular memes like lolcats and catterday, this act of animal abuse was an injustice that needed to be rectified. On the one hand, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, animal abuse, we have to go after this kid. And they did. And there was probably hundreds or thousands of people who participated in the operation, which was not only about informing the police, but also ordering pizzas to his house, cabs, escort services. And because there's hundreds, if not thousands of people participating, 
I think each person feels like, oh, I'm only doing something small, but then in the aggregate, it gets really out of control. The punishment far exceeds the crime in that mm. case. The pizzas and escort services are annoying, but the true hammer of Anonymous, when it came to this boy who called himself the animal abuser, was doxing, revealing his name and personal information online. I've intentionally avoided saying the kid's name here. For as much as animal abuse shocks me to my core, this was a 13-year-old. And I'm not convinced he deserves to be trailed by this shameful incident for the rest of his life. I asked Gabriella Coleman what became of him. I read through a Ask Me Anything Reddit thread where he jumped on to explain what happened to his life. He went into hiding um, mm -hmm. and had to become a very private person precisely because, you know, the internet often does not forget. But yeah. we do live in a day and age where punishment does exceed often the crime through these internet type mobs. Mm -hmm. And I do think he was on the receiving end of that in a very kind of early period. Um, and that specter still kind of haunts uh, the internet today. Along with the flood of information the internet has created, it has also allowed for anonymity like never before. Trolls and bullies take advantage of this to harass people they've decided are villains. I'm on the receiving end of that every single day. Meanwhile, hacktivist groups like Anonymous form their whole identity around anonymity, even as they strip others of their privacy in acts of vigilante justice, exposure as punishment. Information can be a brutal cudgel, and nowhere is wielding that club of information more complicated and contentious than when it comes to exposing child predators. You're looking for a 12 year old? Excuse me? You don't have any weapons on you, do you? Excuse me? I've got your picture. I've got all your text messages. You want to act stupid? Do you want to act like you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about? What you're hearing is a recording from Anthony Green, who runs Truckers Against Predators. Come on, man. I've got all the texts. You want to read, pull, break out your phone and read them to me? This can go a whole lot smoother for you if you're just honest with me, okay? I can't arrest you. I'm not a police officer. That's not my job. You've been talking to a decoy the whole time. Anthony has taken it upon himself to create decoy personas of underage girls, engage in conversations with potential predators, and then expose these men on Facebook Live. I know everything about you. I know where you live. I know who you drive for. Do you realize that when you do this to a child, you ruin them for, your, for a lifetime? You know how I know? Because it happened to me when I was a child. Man, look, you belong in hell or jail, one or the other. What compels someone like Anthony to do this? Is it just? Is it effective at preventing child abuse? I wasn't sure what to think, so I called him up to hash it out. Basically, we catfish. 
We have six or seven full-time decoys, plus my fiance. She's kind of the decoy manager. So we have a team of close to 10 people. Our decoys put ads on social media apps. And what they'll say is, looking to hang out today, people message them. And within three texts, they tell them, hey, I just want to be honest with you. I'm really 12 years old. 90% of the men tell them, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm going to tell your parents. And that's great. It's the other 10% that pursue them and try to groom them and start sending, you know, lewd pictures and want to meet up are the ones that we target. You know, our decoys, they talk to these guys for sometimes months at a time. We get multiple, multiple pictures. We pretty much know the background of everyone that we're meeting up with before I meet them. I've never accidentally exposed the wrong person, you know what I mean? Or walked up to the wrong guy. I don't meet up with anybody that's borderline. They have to do A, B, and C before I will ever meet up with them. But there are plenty of men who pass that high bar. Anthony's been doing this since 2018, sometimes confronting multiple people a week. At its peak, his Facebook page was the most popular of its kind, with videos featuring hundreds of thousands of views. Anthony told me he did an exposure the day before I called him. The gentleman, well, I call him a gentleman, the monster was 62 years old, and he drove 35 miles to pick up what he thought was a 12-year-old little virgin girl. Anthony told me the video already had 50,000 hits and that the police arrested the guy. What happens to the ones who don't get arrested? Usually, it's a public shaming, and hopefully that would wake someone up. I don't purposely try to have someone lose their career or lose their family. Like I said, my goal is to get them arrested. But usually, by the time I hang up my phone, whenever I'm live with someone, their family's already contacting us because the followers are vicious. Online is vicious. You you know that better than anyone, mm-hmm. you know. You can be completely ruined online in 15 minutes. You reap what you sow, you know. If you want to come out here and try to sleep with young kids, I mean, if you're not going to go to jail, everyone's going to know about it. And yeah. that's, that's your own fault, you know. You have no one to blame but yourself. So who are these men Anthony Green is exposing online? The worst one I ever met, his name was Charlie, 79 years old. Charlie was a preacher at a very huge, popular church. He was trying to back up his actions with scripture. He was trying to coerce and groom what he believed was an 11-year-old with the Bible. And I about died, you know. That was the hardest one. How many people that you've encountered do you think it's the first time they ever tried? You definitely get that feeling about some people. I would say probably 25%, 30%, but I think a good portion of the people that I meet have done it before. They're very Mm -hmm. calculated. They circle the meeting spot four or five times looking for police. They know what they're doing. But it's always the same. None of them have ever done it before. That's the first thing. I've never done this before. I'm lonely. 
you know, get a puppy. Are you really lonely? Is that your excuse? You know? Mm. But yeah, it's it's tough. I didn't think it was going to be this tough. I really didn't because of my past and my hatred towards these people. I was like, this is going to be great. Blah, blah, blah. It's hard. It's very emotional. The hatred Anthony is talking about, it doesn't come out of nowhere. I'm a survivor, and without going into any crazy details, I was five years old when it started, and it shaped my life in a negative way. I have multiple people in my family who are survivors. You know, I have a grown daughter who's a survivor. But Anthony says that however personal this is for him, Ultimately, Truckers Against Predators is a public service. Everyone wants to know who lives next door. There are so many of these people that are involved in our kids' lives. Teachers, I mean, we've talked to a 911 dispatcher. We expose a social worker. Everyone wants to know, is this softball coach really legit? The things that I see, they would make you cringe. The internet is a safe haven for these people, and they are after our kids, period. I mean, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. What is it like as a survivor to walk into these situations? It's hard. It's really hard because, I mean, this creates flashbacks, and you relive things that happened to you. My decoys, we've had many, many conversations where they're crying. They're like, hey... Can you put someone else on this guy? Because I can't do it. You know, a lot of them are survivors. The kinds of decoy sting operations Anthony runs are also conducted by groups working with law enforcement, like Operation Underground Railroad, Operation Cross Country, and Operation Net Nanny. Many think even these more official sting operations are problematic. What's your take on how important it is for law enforcement to be the ones who are performing these things versus private citizens. I'm not against police at all, and I do think that they do a great job. But in most cases, I think police are undermanned, and I'm not breaking any laws or I'd be in jail. (laughs) Believe Mm -hmm. me, I'd already be in jail. Why are there mixed reactions to what you do? Well, it's it's controversial. Um, people want to throw the word vigilante around. Um, I don't consider myself a vigilante because the things that we would rather do would never go on camera. I would think a vigilante is someone that would put a beating on somebody, you know? Well, that's not what we do. We really want them in handcuffs and we just want to help. Anthony wants to help kids and society. But is it possible to help these men he's exposing? There's just something wrong mentally with every one of these folks. Mm -hmm. There is nothing normal about wanting to sleep with a child. There's no proven fact that any kind of counseling works for this, you know? I don't think that there's a cure for someone who wants to sleep with children. So your take on it is The only way to deal with somebody who is targeting children for sex is to imprison them. I don't know of any other way. I mean, I don't think prison rehabilitates, but what else is there? 
you know, public hangings, lobotomies. I don't know. I personally think that if we lock them away for a while, at least we have them off the street. But I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. Should we do some kind of public execution of someone that rapes children? Would that detour other people from doing it? Well, actually, there is a robust body of research on this. And the answer to Anthony's question is no. Severe punishments, like public executions, are not effective at deterring crime. According to the National Institute of Justice, it's the certainty of being caught that actually makes a difference. And yet, our system is centered around punishment, and exposure as punishment seems to be a big part of what motivates Anthony. I imagine that it's part love for kids, and it's also a little bit a part hatred for pedophiles, like what oh, yeah. you say. I hate them. I absolutely despise these people. In my eyes, they're worse than murders because the victim has to live a whole lifetime of pain. I'm not even gonna sugarcoat it. I hate them. <laughs> Have you ever been in contact with an organization like Women Against Registry? Funny you say that. I've been messaged by the Women Against Registry. They are trying to abolish sexual predators being put on the list. Is that right? Women Against Registry is run by a woman named Vicki Henry. And in many ways, she's the anti-Anthony. While he's out there exposing predators, she's on a mission to stop the exposure of sex offenders altogether, even by the state. The public, the reptilian brain kicks in. When mm. they hear sex offender, they don't hear anything else. When I tell people, my elevator speech is... Did you know that there's 912,000 men, women, and children that are required to register in the United States? That includes kids as young as 6, 8, and 10. And people's mouths just fly open. I was shocked when I heard her say this. But I looked it up, and she's right. According to Human Rights Watch, children as young as 9 have been placed on the registry, and juveniles account for 25% of registrants. Their offenses include arguably benign actions, like public urination, sexting, and consensual teen sex, and nonviolent offenses like possession of child pornography. That's what got Vicky's son on the registry. After childhood abuse by his father, he developed an interest in child porn. And when he was outed, he sought treatment. He is now classified as a sex offender. But that's not what comes to mind when most people hear the label. What comes to mind is the predator image that Anthony Green's vigilante exposures perpetuate. The lone wolf lurking in a van or behind a computer screen. But according to the DOJ, 93% of child sex abuse is committed by family members, friends, and known authority figures, not anonymous serial rapists. So Anthony is not targeting the heart of the problem of child abuse. But is it still reasonable to think that outing these anonymous predators is increasing public safety? Well, not according to Vicki Henry. 
She says that both vigilante exposures and the official exposure of the sex offender registry lack nuance, mischaracterize the problem, cause collateral damage to families, and are ultimately ineffective. We want all children to be free from harm. We believe that a registry harms not only the victims sometimes, but the children of registrants. That's why we're against a registry. There's a lot of academic studies out there that show that um, the registry does not protect the public. And they've been around for a long time, but they're ignored. The DOJ is aware of this research, and they've reported that the majority of studies demonstrate that the sex offender registry has no impact on the recidivism rates of sex offenders, which are already lower than for any other crime except murder. When they are released into society, sex offenders are not likely to reoffend, And there are alternatives to prison, exposure, and registration. We could be treating pedophilia the same way we treat mental illnesses like schizophrenia that can lead to violence if left untreated. Applied behavior analysis and aversion therapy have been shown to reduce the already low recidivism rates of sex offenders by 15 to 18 percent. But that's just focusing on potential predators. And this is perhaps the heart of the disagreement between Anthony and Vicky. While he tries to disempower the villains, She thinks our resources would be better directed at educating children and families. That is, empowering potential victims. At some point, I don't know how we got there, but we feel like shaming people, incarcerating people is the answer to everything. We support groups like Stop It Now. They have their circles of safety, and they teach parents how to begin a dialogue, which is very tough for parents. It takes work to keep that dialogue open so that if, say, Uncle Charlie makes Susie, their daughter, feel uncomfortable in either the way he looks at her, things he says, whatever, little Susie can go to mom or dad because there's that dialogue and say, you know, Uncle Charlie makes me nervous. We need to invest heavily in child sexual and physical abuse training programs. Get them in the schools, get them in the organizations, because that's how we're going to protect people. When I brought up these critiques of the registry system and the value of exposing predators to Anthony Green, he was more sympathetic than I expected. I have a friend. We were 22 years old. We went out for a bachelor party. And one of the guys ended up going home with a girl. The next day, he found out she was 15 with a fake ID. Mm. And now he's on the sexual registry for the rest of his life. He lost his career. Mm-hmm. I mean, the girl, I was there. I met the girl. And she looked older than the girl I was with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's extenuating circumstances. But these people that we're trying to meet up with are people that are actually trying to have sex with an 11 or 12 year old. We want the true pedophiles, the true groomers that are after little children. But what is a true pedophile? Here again, the language we use can trip us up. When you start looking into the details, pedophilia looks less black and white and more complex. 
There are even organizations run by pedophiles to help pedophiles. Have you had a chance to ever be in touch with virtuous pedophiles? Do you know what I they're all about? Is it like a support group? Yeah, in the sense that they're supporting each other to not act upon their urges. You know, their position is, well, I didn't choose to feel this way. I right. have to do something about it. And society isn't helping me. So well, maybe we can help each other. Comfort each other. Like, I don't know. That's kind of disgusting, but that's nothing I would get behind. I mean, I guess it's good that they recognize they have a problem. And I guess that's positive, right? I mean, I don't like these people. They mm -hmm. destroyed my childhood and mm -hmm. I still to this day have problems with it. Mm -hmm. But someone that recognizes they have a problem and they're trying to live right. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that of course, that's positive. But you feel that rage. I get angry, you know. Certain people trigger you and it, it puts a salty taste in your mouth and it's hard to control. How have you grappled with that feeling of righteous rage inside yourself? Do you embrace it? Do you hold it at arm's length? I'm proud that I'm able to speak to them level-headedly and not, I try to keep that under control. When in the back of your mind, you know <laughs> the pictures that they were just sending, this little 12-year-old girl, them masturbating in videos, a child that's not even in junior high school. I've never assaulted anyone, but it was close. Mm. I think it's a matter of time. I hope not, I'm knocking on wood here, and I always wanna come home to my family. Do you know if anyone that you have exposed was later, you know, beaten by anyone who had watched your videos? Not to my knowledge, but- How would you, you feel know, if, if that happened? It would be bittersweet. I would love to smack some of these guys in the mouth. You know, I, I meet up with someone and the guy's sitting there laughing at you like it's a joke, you know? And I'm a big guy. I'm 6'3", 300 pound man. And most people don't just sit there and laugh in my face, but I've had it happen. And you have to have that restraint to be able to walk away. Am I saying that I wouldn't love to see someone get smacked? Of course I would. But, you know, I'm not condoning people to go out and be vigilantes and, and do something terrible. As I've found so often in conversations this season, people mean different things when they say vigilante. Anthony sees what he does, guerrilla exposure, as drawing the line just before vigilante action. Vicki Henry sees it differently. These organizations, the, the Truckers Against Predators, they're vigilantes. They're not trained. They're not prepared to handle a situation. When you meet somebody and you broadcast the meet on Facebook, and embarrass people, that just sends them off the deep end. And that's not productive. We have to get past the idea of locking everybody up and actually treat people like human beings. If you take it upon yourself to do these kind of things, you can cause you know someone else to get hurt. We've had registrants that have had a knock or ring at the door, and they go to the door, they don't open it, but they ask who's there, and they get shot and killed through the door. Wow. And 
you're putting a target on everybody's back. Vicki Henry makes a valid point. In my research, I found several cases where sex offenders were murdered by vigilantes in just that way. In one case in Canada, 24-year-old William Elliott was shot to death in his doorway by Stephen Marshall, who had found his address through the registry. As a teenager, Elliott was sentenced to four months in prison and required to register after having consensual sex with his then-girlfriend, weeks before she turned the legal age of 16. Anthony Green isn't shooting sex offenders through doorways, but he's also not showing up discreetly with referrals for therapists. He's exposing them to the world, potentially putting targets on their backs, and maybe even destabilizing these men's lives and making them more dangerous to their community. Over the course of our conversation, I shared all these concerns with Anthony, what I'd found in my research and the views of Vicki Henry, and Anthony's response impressed me. Thanks for spending so much time with me talking about this. Um, I know it's hard. It is. And it's very hard. This has been the most in-depth interview I've ever done, the most in-depth conversation. I'm sitting here thinking, how should I reach out to these people? And what do I do? What do I say? So yeah, this mm-hmm. interview's definitely got me and my feelings. I do think that the issue that you're grappling with is one that is very easy to look at flippantly. But if you really look hard, it gets really complicated. I try to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to label everyone as the same thing because they're not. But I'm passionate about what I do. I'm not going to stop no matter what. I have a question. What do you think about what I do? Honestly. Mm, honestly? And I won't be mad at you if you think I'm yeah. a dirtbag. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think anyone's a dirtbag. Um, I feel, you know, like there's there's so many times where I, you know, catch my fiance checking me out. And I stop and think, man, it must be weird being in that guy brain and just looking at my boobs and not being able to help it because I do not experience that. Like, I don't, you know, I don't look at male mannequins in the windows and go, ooh, look at those shoulder blades. Like, but my, <laughs> but you know, but like my, my fiance does like catch himself looking at mannequins in the window because they look vaguely shaped like women. And I do not experience that same impulse, but I can appreciate that that's something that he grapples with. It also makes me stop and think, what is it that these people are experiencing that I don't feel myself personally. I don't like thinking about people as monsters. And whether we like it or not, you know, these are citizens who have rights. They have the right to be tried and to be considered innocent until proven guilty. And I recognize that the people who you end up exposing are people who have sent you the most explicit of messages But I think that it should be brought attention to law enforcement. I think that stirring up hatred towards people online is a very, very slippery slope. And it's very scary. scary. And I'm scared of internet mobs. I really am. That's a legitimate fear. I mean, 
I just had this conversation with my fiance about hanging it up a couple days ago mm-hmm. because I fight with myself back and forth about these people, you know, mm-hmm. um, cause I'm not a police officer. I understand what you're talking about and I respect your opinion and I hope you don't judge me cause I'm not a bad person at all. And I don't think you're a bad person. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. And I, you know, I have a lot of thinking to do. And that thinking that has to be done goes both ways. I also asked Vicki Henry, the anti-Anthony, to consider his perspective. Is there any part of you that understands where the truckers against predators are coming from? They're vigilantes and they're creating crime where there may not be a crime. Have you ever had the chance to speak directly with them? No, but I would love it. What would you tell them? I would tell them, guys, I know you're trying to help, but you are ruining lives. That's a hard thing to say and a hard thing to hear. But I was already so impressed by how forthright these two had been in discussing their own private traumas that I thought it was worth it to see if I could get them to talk together. It's hard to imagine a more controversial and taboo subject than how to deal with sex offenders. And it's hard to imagine two people who disagree more. Truckers against predators, wielding exposure as punishment, and women against registry, standing up for the most hated of citizens and against even state-sanctioned forms of punishment through exposure. And guess what? They agreed. So I just wanted to start out this whole conversation by saying how amazingly awesome you both are. I have really, really thoroughly enjoyed my conversations with both of you. And I'm so excited for this call But also, this call doesn't need to happen, and if anything is painful or difficult, either of you at any time can just say, you know, I feel uncomfortable, or let's move past this. Or even if you want, you could, like, totally hang up. I just wanted to lay that out there from the beginning. How do you guys feel about that? That sounds good. I have an open mind, for sure. You know, actually, I haven't done one since you and I talked last. I've been going back and forth with myself in my own head. Oh, yeah. Really had had me in my feelings a lot. As in, he hadn't gone through with a Facebook exposure in two and a half weeks, the very act that defines truckers against predators. In the course of our hour-long conversation, I asked Anthony and Vicky to explain what they do and why they think it matters. And I discovered that both of them were particularly upset by the act of grooming— the predator slowly preparing the victim. But is it the pedophile or the exposer who's doing the grooming? You hear all of this, Mm. a predator grooms a child. But law enforcement and the task forces do the same thing. We call it the bait and switch because once they have them groomed where the individual is excited, they'll say, well, oh, by the way, I'm, you know, like I'm 14 years of age. And I know people have tried to back out and and task forces will get very agitated and demanding with them. And then if a person says, okay, well, you know, I'll meet you. Then they go and start having these thoughts. It's like, I'm not sure this is on the up and up. And maybe they drive past the location 
Mm. Or maybe they drive in to the parking lot and out and Mm. the police run them down and arrest them. So there's predators, but there's also groomers on both sides. Anthony, what do you think? Um, I understand what you're saying about bait and switch, um, Mm -hmm. but I could get in serious trouble if I did that. And I wouldn't do that. We try to do things properly. And I think that the people that come after us, they show up to do the deed. The only thing that's left to do is to actually do it. I don't see how it's okay for there to have to be a rape victim before someone like that is punished. Right. Anthony, you know, you bring up a legit, not easy to answer question. I don't believe in anybody has to be raped. That's not where I'm going. I'm just saying there's a lot of things that could prevent it getting to that point. When you put a young person in the bedroom with their laptop, with a webcam and a phone, then you could potentially be putting what I consider a gun in their hands because parents a lot of times don't monitor things. Um, Well, right, but I'm not talking about someone like my friend or your son, okay? I'm talking about a man my age trying to meet a child for sex that he groomed. Why does there have to be a victim in order for someone to be punished? Why why does a child have to be ruined for the rest of their life? That's where I come in. I just don't understand why there needs to be a victim in order to get the real predators away from society or into some kind of counseling or jail. It's a problem. Well, part of the problem is that we're all about punishment. I wish that if there was a problem and the family recognized it, that the family could get some help before anything did happen. Right. But that's not realistic at all. Anthony, when we talked um, together, you said that your main goal was that you were hoping that a person who had done this, who had done everything but the deed, would be held accountable in a court of law. And that process allows for due process. It, It allows for the rights of the accused and it allows that person a chance to defend themselves before the state. And there's a big difference between that and outing someone on Facebook. Right. You're right. It's basically a public shaming, a tar and feathering modern day. I mean, it's terrible. And that's why I've been kind of holding up since we've talked. If I go live and put a camera on someone and say, John Smith is here to meet this child, blah, blah, blah. His life's over. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no due mm-hmm. process, like mm-hmm. you said. Right. And, and that's true. I think that one thing that Vicky is speaking to is like the really difficult problem of having some kind of, if not compassion for actual predators, then like a reasoned response to actual predators. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we've, we've also been sort of dancing around this conversation with actual predators. How do we deal with them? Do we deal with them through a symbolic sort of shame and punishment, or do we attempt to address the problem? And as a society, how do we choose how to respond? 
We do believe in restoration, and we do believe the restorative justice and transformative justice is about restoring the victim, restoring the perpetrator, and restoring the community. And I don't, think that, that I think happen. both of us kind of agree in a way. Um, it's hard for me, you know. It's hard because the people I go after are people that, like you said, are there to do the deed. They show up. And if it were a child, then they would do something terrible. Anthony, what worries you about what you're doing? The things that I worry about are I can't control my followers. I can't control people that watch my videos. And people are very easy to locate these days. I could get off here, Vicky, and find your house in a half hour easily, you know. Oh, you haven't already? And <laughs> and that's scary you know that's scary I try to use my platform for good and mm-hmm. up until the conversation with Amanda the first one I felt like I was doing that and now I question myself I understand I do know that there are predators I do know that there are people that are ensnared that are not predators and I don't believe in ruining a life and a family's life because there's just so many incidences where things go wrong. Okay. Well, hopefully you have a different view of me. I'm sure you came into this with a negative view of me. (laughs) No, 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 no. I've met all kinds of people and the only way that we're going to make any difference is to talk things through. So, Well, Mm -hmm. you know what my goal is? I'd like to inform myself I don't want to just talk out of my rear end. Um, Yeah, that's a sign of intelligence, knowing what you don't know. (laughs) Right. You know, and I'm the first one to admit if I'm ignorant on a fact. But, but yeah, I'll I'll give you my cell phone, Vicky, if you'd like to talk further. Not necessarily today, but anything I can do to help, I will. Yeah, Yeah, let's plan to go into organizations and, and talk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can even meet and have coffee or something if you want. We can talk. Yeah. Of all the conversations I've had this season, this one, talking about the ethics of exposing child predators, was the most difficult. What could be filled with more emotional and political landmines? It would be so easy for this conversation to get derailed. And it likely would have, had it happened on Facebook. The internet has enabled us to exchange information at mass scale instantly, but that hasn't fostered mutual understanding or respect. For the very nature of the medium encourages hot takes and superficial connection. The emotional reality of another human being across from you gets lost through the interface of the screen. And that enables things like harassment and bullying trolling and e-vigilantism, whether that's doxing an animal abuser or exposing a potential predator. Neither are attempts at real human connection, at healing. That's why it gives me so much hope to witness Anthony and Vicky seeing past their pain and seeing each other. If vigilantism is assuming you know what's right and imposing that vision of justice on others, then what just happened between Anthony and Vicky is the opposite. It's the process of arriving at justice through conversation and consensus, even when the subject is as personally traumatic as this. And let's not forget that trauma. 
Anthony and Vicky have both been harmed by sexual violence. And if they can ask the hard, uncomfortable questions, so can we. Next time on The Truth About True Crime, we'll look into mob justice and our own national trauma of lynching. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, at sundancetv.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.